Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my Hall of Fame co-host, Kevin Kernan. And we are on episode 207. We've got a special treat for you today. A little music gave you a preview to a tiny bit into our guest. Um, but just a little note to our audience before I bring in Kevin, I want him to talk about that Yankee Mets article that he wrote. I think that's appropriate uh, for today's show as well, too. But over 19,000 subscribers. Kevin challenged you earlier in the week to get up to 20. We're getting close right now. But to those 19,000 plus subscribers, make sure you continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. Get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I answer one question live every day on Facebook. I get back, back to everybody privately throughout the day. Also follow Kevin, Ball9, two great articles every week. You can follow him on all the social mediums as well. Very interactive. Our whole group is. We're in 72 countries now, grassroots MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there. And at the request of our audience, I always read this to our new audience list or to our new listeners. As we go on with this show, as we do with all our shows, prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truths about baseball and sports and life and health. Um, as this program, like all of our others, have no time for comforting lies. So we're going to hit you right between the eyes here. Got a wonderful guest today. I'm very excited to have him on. Is a friend of one of our frequent guests on the show, too. So we've got a couple ties here. But before we do that, Kevin, welcome back to the show. You're the star of the show here, our flagship show, Coach and Kernan. Uh, great articles again this week. I love the one with the Yankees and the Mets. I mean, that's you always hold people accountable. But, I mean, they're spending the money. they got to win games. Yeah, Dave, thanks for having us back. And uh, actually, my daughter Kelly was here for five days. She just left. So uh, we had a great visit with her. I wrote that in between. We watched the games together, uh, father-daughter watching baseball. And um, she was pointing out some things to me. She, As you know, she's a, she was a softball coach. Got a little, you know, a little frustrated by how uh, the kids are today. But she pointed out, what is Nimmo doing? What's this? What's that? How's that throw? Because she hasn't been watching a lot of baseball, and it's pathetic. There's no other way to describe it. People are getting ripped off every day, paying good money for Major League Baseball and seeing this garbage. Uh, $341 million for Lindor running around. He releases new shoes. He does this. He does that. You know what? Play shortstop. And shut up and play shortstop. You know what? We don't care about your opinions on anything. Play shortstop. Uh, Max Scherzer, he's a, he's a warrior, but he's got to change. He can't keep throwing that crappy slider. Uh, and again, nobody's hardly anybody's writing this. I don't know what they're watching. What they're afraid of everybody's uh, beholden. What what the deal is? It's, it's kind of similar to. Uh, I just read today that the average family's grocery bill went up seventy one percent this year. Seventy one percent. So 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 you're paying more for baseball. You're paying more for groceries. Uh, you really need. I think people really need to start taking a hard look at things and make some tough decisions. It's it's a tough. It's a tough uh, world we're living in right now. That's what's kind of interesting about our guests because he, he, he'll relieve some of that pressure. Yeah, and I can I can concur on the grocery bills. Gosh, I drop close to 600 bucks every two weeks on groceries with the four kids. So um, I loved Lindor when he was playing with Cleveland. Since he's come to the Mets, I can't watch him anymore. No, because everything's a big swing. Everything's, you know, what color is his hair today? What color is this? What kind of shoes are he wearing? And uh, you know what? I, that's why I love Volpe. He's not there yet, but he, he plays hard. You know, he plays hard. Lindor, a scout told me when I, when the Mets got him and did the extension, and I wrote about it. So this is not something I'm jumping on just now. 
He said Lindor's swing is way too big. He started the first two years, he was a good hitter. Then he got home run happy. And even in that game against the Mets, the final game, and I'll, I'll leave it at this, his first at-bat was very good. Took a short swing, hit a rocket down to first base that was caught. Uh, next at-bat was pretty good, too. He, he doubled off the wall, short swing. Third at-bat, he got big, popped up with men on scoring position. Base, and then uh, the four, and then I think he struck out the next time with uh, you know one other time. So, so he's capable. That's where I'm getting on him. He's capable. And he just doesn't want to do it because he's all about the show, not the substance. Yeah. No, I, I want to ask you about Volpe, too. Do you, do you think he's getting caught up in that launch angle stuff, or is this just him time to Absolutely. Over? Matter of fact, uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, some Yankee people told me last year, but he was struggling early in the year in the minors. I was asking some people who, you know, know the kid well. Because, again, it's just, these are not just my opinions. I rely on – I do research, you know, and research is important. And they told me that the Yankee development people were trying to change his swing, and obviously they did. He had a great swing uh, early on in his career and out of high school, but they, they they sold him on the launch angle, and he's way too big on the launch angle. He's he's I don't know what his weight is, 180 maybe, but, uh, again, same thing. He, the launch angle has destroyed baseball in every way cap- – uh, capable. Billy Ripken had a great, and we got to get Billy on the show. Billy had a great point the other day about Luis Arise's swing angles, like basically 10% up and down, never, never higher. And, and, and major, here's the amazing thing. When major league baseball players swing at that 10% level uh, and contact over 90 miles per hour exit velocity, you know what they're hitting? Something like 485. Yeah, 485. I saw that. Yeah. So, so, this is what's going on in the world. You, what your eyes see, what the numbers tell you, the the, the experts, the uh, maybe maybe the um, you know the the fifty uh, experts that maybe reported on Hunter's laptop or whatever, you know, the experts tell you no, that's not the truth. So here's where we are in this world, and uh, and good luck. Yeah, I thought that was great when he did that. That with this whole movement around numbers, there was the most obvious number right there, and they they spent several years trying to convince the baseball world that batting average is not important. Not important. Yeah. No. Unfortunately. RBIs, batting average. And uh, give me that guys who are clutch, you know, it, it, you got to be clutch. You got to do it. And uh, um, if it's baseball is basically killing itself. That's all I can say. They're killing yeah. itself. And my favorite number of all, I asked a, uh, an analytics guy the other day who I, I won't embarrass on the show, but he was throwing all these numbers at me. I said, what are, what's the batting average on balls not put in play? That it's so funny you say that, Dave, because I was Kelly was asking me about my daughter, who's very, very smart, good kid. You know, she's not a kid anymore, but, uh, you know, she she was asking about some things she said. And she asked me about, uh, is there a stat called that with balls are put in play and they use that average? And I said, yeah, that's called Babbitt. And I put it in the article as a joke, really. But, uh, you know, uh, batting average balls in play. And she goes, she said exactly that. Well, what about the balls that aren't played? How come they don't count that? It's so, it's ridiculous. And these owners, Steve Cohen deserves everything he gets, spending his money and having his garbage team. And I'm going to go one step further here. If he goes out and hires David Stearns from the, from Milwaukee, bad move. That's going to be a bad move too because he got rid of all the scouts. A scout told me yesterday, Milwaukee has no scouts out in the field anymore, basically. Oh, I know we've got Jim Jim Rooney living close to me now, and he's oh, he, Jimmy he knows. was there forever. Yep, was there forever. In fact, he texted me this morning before the show. So who's on today? 
And uh, but w- with our audience, obviously, you know, continue to follow Kevin on Ball Nine. Does tremendous work every week, and uh, great storyteller, great researcher. Has the the trust and the relationships to to uncover and discover things that other people aren't writing, and the guts to write about it. Really, um, where others aren't doing that. So we appreciate that, Kevin. And with with that, our our guest today, and uh, Lynn, you'll you'll have to forgive me. I'm gonna. I have my first two questions, I think, are going to give a great background into who you are and, and what you do. So I'm going to keep the preamble short and I'm going to allow you to put it in your own words. But episode 207 today, Coach and Kern, and we have the originator of the sports sports time traveler, Len Furman, has a Substack, also has a podcast, very unique research style, very unique storyteller, very unique way he started uh, this this process. And we're going to get him to tell all about that today. Uh, Len, welcome to our show. Well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you, Dave, for having me on the show. It's a real thrill to be here. But before we start, I just want to take a quick moment and thank my beautiful wife, Heather. It's our 35th wedding anniversary this weekend. And I have to tell you that my wife's constant support and encouragement has made possible this incredible journey I've had developing the sports time traveler. I also have to give just a real quick shout out to my parents, Arlene and Stanley, particularly my dad as we're here at Father's Day weekend. He engendered my love for sports when I was a kid, and now I'm grateful that I'm able to give him something back with all the stories I've written from sport of sports history, and he's really been enjoying reading them. So thank you so much for this opportunity to be on the show here today, Dave and Kevin. Oh, we're glad to have you. You're, you're uh, going to be a tremendous treat to our audience. You won some points with your wife, obviously. You can't use a copy of the podcast as your gift to her, though. Right. <laughs> That'll, that'll negate the, the points there. And I celebrated my 16th uh, just earlier this week. So we're on the same week here. And I have my 44th this week. Yeah, it's, uh, we're, all, we're all together here. So it's, it's meant to be today, meant to be. Um, so with, with Len, f- first question for you, um, how did this all begin? What was, the, what was the genesis of the sports time traveler? So the genesis goes back 50 years or so to uh, 1970 when I was a six-year-old kid and I first became aware of baseball and fell in love with the New York Mets. I grew up in the New York area, and I was a diehard Mets fan in 1970. And as I learned in 1970, the year before, our team had done something unbelievable. They were the Miracle Mets of 1969. They won the World Series after they had been the laughing stock of baseball their first uh, seven years in existence. And I missed it. <laughs> I, I grew up loving the Mets, 70, 71, 72, 73. These are, I'm a little kid. I'm living for the Mets. These are my big years. And all I know is I missed winning the World Series. So this, my whole life, I've I've thought about that. And when we got to 2019 and the 50 year anniversary, I thought I've got to resolve this. I've got to find a way to feel like I really experienced it. And so I started reading books about the Miracle Mets, watched some videos, but it just didn't do it for me. And so I realized one day what I've got to do is just go back and look at the newspaper archives and, and kind of like follow the team. So I sort of did this loosely in 2019, and it was a great experience. And I felt like I got to experience the 69 Mets, but I was kind of doing this myself. And I, I do have a group of uh, lifelong friends who are all Mets fans. Every once in a while, I would start sending them an email and saying, hey, on this day in 69, this happened and that happened and Seaver did this and Kuzman did that. And uh, and they were kind of interested. So I thought, oh, I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep going. 
1970. So I was reading newspaper archives every day, every once in a while, sending emails to my friends. And then by early last year, they were saying to me, hey, Len, you got to do something with this. These are interesting stories. And and that's when I started researching, well, what can I do? I'm not a sports reporter in my background. My, my, My background is I'm an innovation consultant and professor. And so I thought, well, I'm going to use my creativity and innovation skills and figure out, well, what can I do here? And that's why I came up, that's how I came up with the concept of the sports time traveler. So the, the premise of the sports time traveler is I've traveled back in time virtually to cover sporting events from the past as if they're happening now. And my big focus has been on the New York Mets, but I also cover uh, other sports because I'm just a sports crazy fan in general. And it's been an very uh, interesting experience as I go back in time and I try to I try to observe my my rules of sports time travel by the way which is you you have to go back exactly 50 years and then and then live in the moment there and cover sports day by day and never look ahead so so every day when I open up the the sports news I go to this day exactly 50 years ago and I'm looking at the Mets and the Yankees and what's going on in horse racing and golf and tennis. And, you know, during the football season, I'm following football. So that that's what I've been doing with the sports time traveler over the past year. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You have a sub stack. You also have a podcast. Um, and you, t- you touched on it a little bit. Go, go deep into, cause I'm, I'm guessing you just don't wake up today and you start looking back 50 years ago, you're working in advance with probably several projects at a time, but Talk uh, or share with our audience about your your process. Dive deep into that for us. So, so actually, I am waiting till today to look back 50 years ago. One, one of my other rules of sports time travel is never look ahead. Because first and foremost, I'm trying to have this experience of reliving, or in, in many cases, experiencing sports for the first time from 50 years ago. A lot of it I don't remember. And so I, I want to... I want to first and foremost have that experience myself. So I so today I opened up the New York Times archive from June 16th, 1973 and read the sports pages. So I, I don't do it in advance because I want to be able to stay right in this moment. And I think that's what gives me the ability to get really excited uh, and and share stories that, that uh, are compelling. I, I like to tell my readers, I'm following the sports from 50 years ago, but my promise to you is I'm I'm only going to write a story when I find something so compelling, so exciting that I just have to share it with you. And I think I think what comes through in a lot of my articles is this excitement that I'm only sharing stuff when I come across a real story. So I'm not just going to report on oh the Mets won today and Wayne Garrett hit a three-run homer. That's what actually happened last night. If there's if I don't find a good story in it, then I'm not going to write about it. So I don't write about the Mets every day. I write about the Mets when there's something to talk about, something exciting to talk about. And so the process I go through is I'm reading the sports pages every day, 50 years ago. When I find something exciting, then I write a story about it. Yeah. So you're not beholden to a particular day. I like that. Um, so so I'll give you a, a tangible one you, you wrote about and kind of give us some some background on that. I, I enjoyed the one you wrote about. And again, I apologize. You've written tons of them. But 
uh, an unbeaten, untied, I'm an upstate New Yorker, so an unbeaten, untied Colgate football team. You don't hear a lot about Colgate football. Some engineers come out of there, some captains of industry, but very rarely do you hear about football. But they had an unbeaten, untied, um, unscored upon season in 1932, I believe, if I remember reading it right. How did that come about? And, and what did you learn about that? That That is the most unbelievable story in sports I've ever come across. And I don't know why the average sports fan, I'm, I'm a big sports fan, and yet I didn't know about this story. The way I came across this one, it was almost like sports archaeology work. I was reading the Los Angeles Times uh, 50 years ago, exactly 50 years ago, one day last December. And one of the sports columnists uh, had an article where he posed uh, a question and answered his own question. Has there ever been in college football a team that went unbeaten, untied, and unscored upon? And then his answer was yes. <laughs> and instantly, I like my eyes just like jumped off the computer screen. Yes, there was a college football team that went unbeaten, untied, and unscored upon. And he mentions there it was the 1932 Colgate team. So instantly, I, I, I wrote in my article about this, I instantly had to jump into the sports traveler time machine, shoot back to 1932, and see what happened. And it got even more interesting because here we were in early December now. I, I'm, again, I, when I go back in time, I go back an exact amount. So if I'm going to go back, I usually go back 50 years. In this case, I was going back 90 years. But when I do go back 90 years, it's 90 years to the day. So I go back 90 years to the day. I forget exactly what day it was. It was like December 10th. And what I'm finding is not only is are there stories about this Colgate team that had gone unbeaten, untied, unscored upon, but now there's also a huge controversy because they were uninvited, <laughs> uninvited to the only bowl game that was played back then. And this was something else I didn't know about. When you go back to 1932, there is only one bowl game in all of college sports. They haven't started playing the Orange Bowl. They haven't started playing the Cotton Bowl, the Rose Bowl. That's the only bowl game. And Colgate, by virtue of this unbeaten, untied, unscored upon season, it was assumed that they were going to get invited to the Rose Bowl. And th there's articles about how they were invited or they're going to be invited. And then the article I'm reading is they're uninvited. And and so there's this real controversy. And what happened is... Uh, it's it's almost Im unbelievable to, to to understand what happened in 1932. The way the Rose Bowl worked back then was it was designed that there would be a team from the West and a team from the East. And the Rose Bowl committee would select the team from the West. And they selected USC. USC was the obvious choice. They had gone undefeated. And then the team from the West gets to choose who their opponent's going to be. Imagine that. It's unbelievable. So instead of inviting Colgate, they invited Pittsburgh. And uh, Pittsburgh, when you look at the schedules, they didn't play Colgate, but when you do the transitivity wheel and look at common opponents, it's very clear that even though Pittsburgh went undefeated, Colgate had a much better, better resume. And of course, Pittsburgh had not gone unscored upon. And so a uh, real travesty that Colgate, with this unscored, unbeaten, untied uh, season, did not even get invited. It was uninvited to the Rose Bowl. Yeah. And Colgate, for our audience members, upstate New York, that's up in the Hamilton uh, area. So you've got Colgate, Hamilton. Those are some, some schools up there. And obviously not known as a 
perennial football powerhouse anymore. So I'm, I'm, it was sure great for the Colgate alum to, to hear that at one point in time they were prominent, prominent enough to be uninvited. To get in, uninvited, you have to first get invited, I guess, to a Rose Bowl. So um, I'm going to throw another story at you. Again, different sport. I'm a big horse racing fan. Again, grew up in upstate New York, so I was a little biased toward my my readings, but I heard it on your podcast as well. Um, the Was it the obliteration of the Belmont? Share that. Well, thanks. Uh, so that was the last story that I'm writing in the series about the great racehorse secretariat, probably the greatest racehorse in history and arguably the greatest athlete of all time across any species. And I, I had a lot of fun writing these secretariat articles, but I want to give a quick shout out to a reader of mine, Joe McVeigh, who happened to be a four-time uh, top American in the New York Marathon back in the 90s. And Joe asked me late last year, when you get into uh, 1973, can you write about Secretariat? And I have to admit that I, I wasn't thinking, it wasn't top of mind that I would write about Secretariat. So in the back of my mind, as we got into this year, I, I, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to write about Secretariat. And, and uh, so I started writing articles earlier than I would have, knowing that the Kentucky Derby was coming up. And I came across something really interesting. Uh, a few weeks before the Kentucky Derby, Secretariat and his rival Sham met up at the Wood Memorial in Aqueduct. And Sham crushed Secretariat. I had no idea that this great racehorse Secretariat, we remember him for his incredible triple crown, had actually lost his last race before the Kentucky Derby badly. But then, of course, Secretariat wins the Kentucky Derby, wins the Preakness, the second leg of the Triple Crown, both times beating Shem by just a little bit and both of them well ahead of the field. And the interesting thing there was Shem's time in the... Secretariat set the record in the Kentucky Derby. That record still stands. Shem's time in losing the Kentucky Derby is still the second fastest time in the history of the Kentucky Derby. And now these two horses come to the Belmont Stakes, and, and it's a great story because Secretariat's got a chance to win a Triple Crown. At that time, no horse had won the Triple Crown in 25 years, and sports writers were starting to doubt it could ever be done again for various reasons. And Sham had this opportunity to kind of even the score because Secretariat had won two races and Sham had won one. Sham could win the Belmont Stakes, win one of the Triple Crown races, and even the score with Secretariat. And they go off. And it's an unbelievable match race. Both of them go to the front and they're way clear of the field. At, at the mile mark, they're like seven, they're neck and neck, seven lengths ahead of the rest of the field. But the Belmont's a mile and a half race and Sham started to tire and Secretariat just keeps charging. And by the end, Secretariat was ahead by an unbelievable 31 lengths. There's never been anything like this in a triple crown race. He obliterated the record. And it's still the uh, the American record on a dirt track for one and a half miles, the, the race of Secretariat that day. So obviously won the Triple Crown. It, it's really qu quite an incredible story of dominance. And uh, and I, I had a lot of fun writing that, uh, that whole Triple Crown series. Yeah, I enjoyed listening to the pod and, and, and uh, catching up on that as well. Everybody, a lot, most people saw the movie, so it's Hollywood teams tends to Hollywood up the ending sometimes, but there's nothing Hollywooded up about that ending. It was a complete, you know what, kicking at, at the end of that. So I think you covered it tremendously. And you, you, that's what you do. You travel back in time virtually. You bring your readers, your listeners back in time, and we feel like we're sitting there. And I did as well. 
Um, got one more for you and I pass it on to Kevin. We, we have a mutual friend with the show. It's how we met. Um, I want, I want you to share your relationship with Ted Kubiak, former shortstop for the Oakland A's was a part of those, you know, back to back to back world championship teams. Um, share your, how you met him and how that relationship came about. And then Pete Rose had an interesting comment about Ted when, when, when the A's beat him off of a Pete Rose, uh, strategic turf play, um, that gives a little insight into Ted's mind and how he thinks defense. So Ted grew up in central New Jersey in a little town called Highland Park. And my family is from Highland Park, New Jersey. And one of Ted's best friends in high school was my cousin, Alan. And uh, many years after they had graduated high school, when Ted was playing for the world championship Oakland A's teams that won three consecutive World Series championships, uh, the A's were in uh, Boston. My cousin was living in Boston at that time. So my family took a trip up to Boston. This is when I was uh, the summer of when I was uh, nine years old in 1974. And I got to meet Ted Kubiak on the field at Fenway Park. It was such a thrill. And he gave me a baseball signed by Reggie Jackson, Catfish Hunter, and everybody from the 1972-1973 uh, World Championship Oakland A's team. And it was just an absolute thrill. And then uh, fast forward uh, another about 49 years, and I start writing the Sports Time Traveler, and I, and I get to the October 1972, and I'm covering some stories there, and there's some stories where Ted Kubiak plays a key role in a playoff game and then in a World Series game. And I think, why don't I try to get in touch with Ted Kubiak, my cousin Alan uh, you know, was such good friends with him. So I was able to get in touch with Ted. So I hadn't I had no contact with him personally for 49 years. And uh, we've since become uh, friends. He's given me a lot of great feedback on the sports time traveler. And I've uh, been able to write three articles about him. Uh, and in some cases, things that he didn't uh, quite remember uh, were because I did, I do a lot of digging into lots of newspapers. When I'm writing a story, I don't just look at one newspaper. I'll, I'll go into the archives and look at several newspapers and get the angle from uh, different uh, uh, scenarios. And there was one quote that Pete Rose had made that Ted uh, maybe didn't know about at the time, but I think it was in the New York Daily News where Ted had made a key play that wrapped up game one of the 1972 World Series for the A's. And I forget... I have to apologize. I forget the particulars of the play, but there was something about how Ted charged the ball on the AstroTurf at Riverfront Stadium in in, um, in Cincinnati. I remember it. If you want me to fill it in, uh, sure. Thank yeah. you. No, it was, I was well. It was typical talking to Ted when I read it. You you captured the way he he communicates about baseball perfectly. But Pete Rose tried to use the turf to his advantage. He was in, just like we talked about Luis Arias, who Kevin did early in the show, hit the ball on the line, ground balls, maybe a 10% up every now and then. And he intentionally handled the bat to hit a ball a certain way that he said, if a National League shortstop was fielding it, that it would have been a base hit. He would have beat it out because, because Ted was an American League shortstop. He had inexperience on the turf. So he fielded it like it was grass, and he took the short hop away. So he caught it. He caught it right off the turf, where a, a nationally shortstop would have allowed that extra hop, that extra foot or so. But Ted came up and didn't allow any space on that turf, and, and because of that, he threw Pete Rose out first base. And Pete Rose said, because of Ted's inexperience on turf, he cost the Reds a game. I had to read that several times to make it make sense to me. Because I thought that was fascinating to see that quote in the New York Daily News, and so I 
I wrote an article about that play and put that quote in there. And, and Ted, Ted said he didn't either didn't remember or never saw, it's possible he never saw that quote because it was in the New York newspapers. Ted was playing for Oakland and the World Series was in Cincinnati. Yeah, no, it was great. And, and I think that's a great insight. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Kevin. No, this is great stuff listening. I, I love going back in time. And um, I know you don't look ahead, but you're going to be excited about 1973 in the long run for the Mets, right? It's it's a personally very interesting year because uh, I'll, I'll give I'll, I'll just put a spoiler alert warning here. So any anybody who's going to intend to follow my 1973 articles, uh, you know, you just uh, I'm going to I'm going to let you know what happens here. I normally wouldn't do this. So the Mets are going to kind of bungle along all summer and then suddenly get hot in September and go from last place to first place, win the NL East. Then they're going to play the Cincinnati Big Red Machine in their prime and they're going to beat them in the National League Championship Series. And all of a sudden, the New York Mets, who almost kind of have no right <laughs> being in the World Series, are in the World Series playing last year's champion Oakland A's, and they're going to take them to seven games, and then they're going to lose game seven. And I'll have to tell you that I don't think I've ever gotten over that loss. I'm a true Mets fan, and it still hurts to this day losing that game seven. And so part of this whole journey I'm going on this year with the 1973 Mets, it's almost like a personal opportunity to kind of relive this and and hopefully come to some closure at the end of the season. Along, along those lines, uh, and we're talking to Len Furman, who's got an incredible uh, substack and and everything else going back in time. Along those lines, do you do you uh, do you think you'll have some closure? Uh, the Mets, I'm sure to this day, when I talk to some of those old Mets, they still tell me about that 73 team. But do you appreciate what they did? I mean, they beat the Reds in five games back then. It was a five-game series, I think, and uh, and then and then they took the, the the mighty A's, you know, to seven games. So it's really an amazing amazing trip that they had, and it really shows you. It was almost like a look into the future of a team getting hot for the playoffs and and going far and maybe winning a World Series. Well, I'm going to I'm going to write about this. I'm going to be very introspective when we get to October. My my goal is to come to closure. As, as you said, you have to look back on it and look at the positives. Be, beating the big red machine in the National League Championship Series, that was an end in itself. And taking the ace to seven games was as well. In that series, the Mets led three games to two. And it went back to Oakland and they lost games six and seven. I've already uh, conducted an interview with Ted Kubiak about that series. And he's provided some fascinating insights that I'm going to share uh, when we get to uh, October and I write the articles about the series. He played a key role in one of the games in New York. Um, had, a, had a key play that led to the A's winning one of those games in New York. And theoretically, that cost the Mets the World Series. Wow. They could have won it in New York, uh, possibly four games to one, if not for that Ted Kubiak play. Um, and Ted very interestingly told me that when they won game five uh, or when, when after game five, when they don't think they won game five, but after game five, when they went back to Oakland and they were down three, two, he said the team was absolutely certain they were going to win those last two games and, and take the World Series. 
Isn't it ironic now, too, because of what's going on in Oakland? Um, you know, that team's about to leave there. And just 50 years ago, they had this incredible moment and, and you know, back-to-back-to-backers and, and guys like Ted Kubiak. Uh, you know, we've met a lot of people on the show, and I've met a lot of people reporting, obviously, through the years. But there's no, there's no one who thinks deeper, I think, about baseball and life than Ted Kubiak. <laughs> I've read his uh, couple of books, and they're really fascinating. Uh, I really appreciate and love his focus on defensive work. It, it's a, it's very much a lost art in the game, and uh, everybody could benefit from reading Ted Kubiak's books. Everybody who plays baseball uh, at, at any level and any age would benefit tremendously from reading Ted's books, particularly his book he came out with recently on fielding. That's that's a great point. I'm amazed that you know the nerds are always so be, be so smart. I don't understand why one of the nerds doesn't read that book and then come up with these philosophies and paint them off as themselves. And he might be move all the way up to top nerd on the team. But that that's a story for another day. That 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 uh, A's team also had Holtzman, Vita Blue, Catfish, all three twenty game winners. So uh, so when you go back, do you do you actually kind of Put the reader in, in 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 the area like well we don't know what's going to happen so it must be exciting when something big happens. Exactly, um, I like to think of myself myself as a storyteller, not a reporter. So when I write an article, it doesn't start out as a traditional sports article where you show the result in the headline. You know, Mets beat. Um, um, Padres. Last night, 50 years ago, the Mets beat the Padres. So I don't start out saying Mets beat Padres 5-2, to two, uh, and in the first paragraph, give away the, the climax. Wayne Garrett hit a three-run homer, and the Mets you know, beat the Padres for the second straight night. I don't, I don't write it like that at all. I'm looking for a story angle, first of all. And so, so I'll start out with a teaser headline. I'm not telling you what's going to happen, but I'm alluding to uh, something exciting did happen. And then I'll talk about the game as though it's progressing. So in an article, I might say, you know, here's what happened in the first inning and here's the score at the end of the first inning. And then it might skip ahead to the fifth inning and show you here's the score at the fifth inning. And then, and then, you know, whatever the climax of or the key play of that game is, that's going to be near the end of the article. And the end of the article is going to be who won the game. So when you read my articles, I'm trying to build excitement and build and think in terms of stories and, and have the climax be near the end, not at the beginning. So it's a very different uh, way of reading about sports in addition to reading about sports history. It sounds like it's a little bit like some of these uh, historical TV pieces, docudramas or whatever, and they take you along section by section. And then before you know it, uh, you're living you're living the life with these characters. Yeah, I think it's kind of like that, but I'm also trying to make it concise. Uh, I, I always think in my writing, uh, my one of my assets is I, I'm able to simplify. So I try not to make my stories too long. They're, they're usually not more than about a five-minute read or, or a 10-minute uh, audio podcast. So I'm trying to keep them short, concise, and exciting. Well, you are dealing with, uh, you know, 2023 audience. I can't really uh, stick with anything for more than 10 seconds and where they have to look at their phone. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. And uh, I think one of the things I'm I'm also contributing is that uh, I am sharing something different and uh, providing people with uh, uh, stories that are are inspirational. Uh, All all of my stories are are very positive stories. 
Uh, and, and in this kind of charged time where we're, we hear a lot of negative stories, I really pride myself on, on just sticking to very, very positive stories and providing something that's very different than you're reading anywhere else. Uh, another thing uh, I think I'm contributing is when you think back to these players that played 50 years ago, this is before the big money. Right. And so, so they were playing because they loved the game. It, it's hard to fathom now, but almost every baseball player back then had a regular job in the winter. A lot of, a lot of them were insurance salesmen. It, it's kind of incredible to imagine uh, big sports stars selling insurance in the off season. So, but they weren't making that much money. And so my stories, I feel like I'm really uh, sharing you know, things these people did that everybody should know about because they did work so hard. They were so dedicated to the game and, uh, and, and they were as much, you know, heroes in their time as, as we have now. And people should know about them. Uh, that's a great point. And also, when you talk about the game meaning something, the, that postseason meant a lot because of the money, correct? Oh, exactly. Yeah, that was a big bonus if your team won the World Series or just made it to the World Series. So, yes, a lot of times that that World Series money was really important uh, to the cash flow for those athletes. They needed that money. Uh, that's great stuff. And the... Uh, what, what did you learn about, you know, obviously you, you, you're in 73 now, but you did 72. What did you learn about the player from that era, just as a player and everything else that maybe, maybe something that surprised you or whatever? Well, I think it goes back again to the, the dedication of the athletes. One, one story um, that actually took place in early 1973 that really struck me was 1973 was the first time that the ABC television network put together a made-for-TV sports special called the superstars and oh, the superstars, i remember that show i remember that show yep. it was an incredible thing that you could probably never get today because the the agents the players agents would never allow them to do this but they they got them all together in south florida at the end of february uh one big athlete from 10 different sports so they had 10 players playing in 10 different sports kind of like a decathlon uh, but uh, not traditional track and field decathlon. So they, they did have running events, but they also had swimming, golf, uh, and uh, cycling. And so these 10 great athletes from different sports got together to compete head-to-head in 10 different sports. And some of the sports was their off-season. Naturally, baseball hadn't started spring training yet. Football season was over. But basketball was in the middle of their season. And Elvin Hayes was the representative from the NBA. If you don't, if, if your re- listeners don't know who Elvin Hayes was, uh, one of the all-time greatest players. He's in the probably still in the top ten in scoring. He was the prototypical power forward, and um, l- later on led the Bullets, the Washington Bullets. They were called at that time to the NBA championship. But in 1973, he was determined to represent the NBA, and he had to fly down all night after a basketball game, after he's played an NBA basketball game, he had to fly all night to get to South Florida, compete for two days, and then immediately fly somewhere else in the country uh, the next day to get to his team's next game. He didn't miss a game. And so, and he felt he had to do this to adequately represent the NBA. And I thought that was, and he wasn't getting, or they, they were getting a pittance to um to to participate in this superstars competition he did it because he wanted to represent the NBA and he he won the 100 yard dash which i thought was really interesting you know it's interesting that you get these athletes together from different he, he beat a football player yeah yeah he, yeah, he, he beat yeah. everybody in the 100 yard dash 
No, that's amazing. That's a great story. And the um, and also they back then, I guess they didn't worry about load management like they do in the NBA now. So um, they didn't they didn't worry about load management in baseball either. It's amazing the innings that the pitchers put in and all the complete games they uh, they played. And one of my recent stories was about Wilbur Wood, the knuckleball pitcher on the Chicago White Sox. I remember him well. He put in unbelievable numbers of innings. He started 49 games in 1972. That's just unheard of. Wow. And then in, in the spring of 1973, his manager, Chuck Tanner, had an interesting opportunity. There was a game uh, one night that had been uh, delayed or postponed because of rain uh, and had gone into extra innings and started raining. So they stopped playing and they said, well, we, we're still we're playing the same team the next day on a Sunday. We're just going to. Uh, start the rain delayed game uh, first, and then we'll play the the actual scheduled game. So sort of like a double header. And since it was an extra inning game that they were starting up again, they didn't know how long it was going to go. So they decided to put uh, Chuck Tanner, the White Sox manager, put Wilbur Wood in to start the uh, continuation of the delayed game with the intention of however long he has to pitch in the delayed game till it finishes, he's then going to stay on the mound and pitch the regular game. Well, the delayed game goes five innings <laughs> and and Wood pitches spectacularly. He, he allows no runs, I think one or just two hits in five innings. And then the White Sox purposely uh, designed the break in between the two games to be just 15 minutes long to take advantage of the fact that Wood can just keep pitching all day. And so he then goes ahead and pitches the, a complete game, complete, complete nine inning game and that was either a shutout or a one-run game. So he pitches like 14 innings at most one run, and he gets the win for both games. In the in the continuation game, Dick Allen, who had been the 1972 MVP in the AL, hit a dramatic three-run homer to win the rain-delayed game in, I think, the bottom of the 21st inning. So Wood gets the win in both games. And uh, so I found out, and as I did my research, from the uh, newspaper archives of the day, they, the, the sports reporters in 73 went back and found out that it was all the way back to 1926 Whoa. that a starting pitcher had, had won two games in one day. So it's been done with relief pitchers, but here's a starting pitcher who, who was the first person to pitch on that day in both games, and he won both games. It hadn't been done since 1926. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. I don't think it was against the Yankees, but it could have been. I, I, who was the opponent? Do you know offhand or I not? I believe it was the Brewers. It definitely okay. was not the Yankees. I'm pretty okay. sure it was the Brewers. Okay. My article is titled, Can Wilbur Win 50? Because after that, he was 13-3 and three for the year, and, and it was still the end of May. So, he's won, so he'd won 13 games in the White Sox' first 40 games. But here he's on pace to win 52 games. So I tell my readers at the end of that story, which was just a couple of weeks ago, I tell my readers, I'm going to continue following the season of Wilbur Wood. And here's the interesting thing. I know he doesn't win 50 games. I know he doesn't win 40 games, but I don't know how many games Wilbur Wood won in 1973. And my other rule of time travel, sports time travel is I'm not looking ahead. So I'm going to be following him, but I'm not looking ahead. So I get the same excitement since I don't know what happened. I get the same excitement following Wilbur Wood in 1973, as I might get following Justin Verlander this season. 
That's amazing. It's it said so well. And the reason I bring up word, I be I do remember. I think I I was like twenty years old at the time, nineteen or whatever. And I do remember he came to Yan- and I remember the Yankee announcers talking about that incredible feat. That that's that's that's. And I'm not a great memory guy, but you can see your passion and in your excitement about you know it all comes to life. And and this may be an unfair question, but. Were those seasons of sports, especially baseball, were they more exciting back then because of the way the setup was, and you really had to win your division, and or not? Now you you know you basically had to be a pennant winner. You had a short series, but uh, was that more exciting times than than what we see now, where there's a lot of distractions in sports? Well, obviously we've got lots of distractions. There's so many things distracting us outside of sports, and then even within sports. We're so distracted by everything that's going on on the screen. One one of the things that I remember as a kid is there was almost no graphics on the screen. No. So you were watching a game just kind of uncluttered. In fact, in those days, it's kind of hard to you know, imagine this now, but they didn't keep the score on the screen all the time. So no, I think, yeah, that was... the game, you didn't know what the score was until the end of the inning. And then they posted what the score was. And I think that made it a little more exciting because – you had to stay focused on what's going on in that moment in the game. Yeah, it's like you're at, you're really at the game. What's the score? And and you and you got to figure out. I do remember, and I find it aggravating now. I have to be honest with this. I do remember what they would always post if they did when when they, when they did start posting things. They always posted the batting average. Now, when you watch a game, sometimes you don't you can't even find out what the guy's hitting. They don't they don't post it. Yeah. So they've fallen right into the trap that batting average means nothing. Reggie Jackson, I want to get to Reggie in, in that, you know, because you just did 72 as well. What did you learn about Reggie looking back in time and, and, and dealing with it every day? Well, I haven't haven't followed Reggie Jackson too much. My focus hasn't been on the Oakland A's yet. It'll be on the Oakland A's more later okay. this year. When, when I had, a, you know, I had those few stories come up about Ted Kubiak and I, I followed those, but there was a story I did recently that involved Ted Kubiak and Reggie Jackson, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. There was a game where uh, it came down to uh, the la- A's last at bat and Reggie comes up and he's got an opportunity to win the game and he hits a long fly ball. And I forget who the outfielder was for the other team, but they actually leap up over the wall to catch the ball. Rob Jackson of a, a walk-off home run that would have won a game. And what I thought was real interesting was the newspaper at the time said, uh, Jackson set the record for the longest helmet throw after that ball was caught. So I, I thought that was interesting. And, and it sh- shows the passion uh, that these players had back then. And then the, the real interesting thing about this for, for me was then Ted Kubiak comes up and he wins the game for the A's. So uh, Jackson missing that opportunity gave Ted Kubiak an opportunity to have a hit a game winner and be a hero uh, for the Oakland A's. And it actually was a really important game for them because they had won the World Series in 72. And then at the start of the 73 season, they got off to a really bad start. And they were when this game started, they were six games under 500. And to drop to seven games under 500... Uh, when a couple of teams were out fast, the White Sox and the Kansas City Royals were out to really fast starts. You can't go to seven games under 500, even if it's the end of May. And so that that really was a big 
hit, a big game-winning hit for Ted Kubiak under very interesting circumstances. Uh, that, that's great stuff. And I think you're going to find, I'll be, it'll be interesting to talk to you again when we have you on again down the road, um, uh, the contribution, especially in the postseason, of uh, Burke Campanaris for that team. Because uh, in my mind, he's a player that's really undervalued for what he did um, and, and how tough he was as a player. And uh, now that, that that World Series, just looking now at, at some of the names from that, I'm going to bring up one more name for you because he, he was one of my favorites at the time, he being kind of a lefty hit, hitter and uh, all that stuff. And, uh, um, you know, I, like I said, I was uh, I enjoyed my times uh, and I had I, I have red hair. So Rusty Staub, La Grande Orange, uh, what, what did he mean to you as a Met fan? Well, as of course, in 1973, he was I remember him being one of the people who I thought of as the heart of the club, even though they hadn't brought him in until 1972, he quickly became a real fan favorite for the Mets. In my memory, I, I, I remember visions of him running into the wall to make some catches and sure. hurting himself, but, you know, you know, playing, playing. And those are walls, not to cut you off, but those are real walls back then. They weren't padded. And, and he played with a reckless abandon in his effort to win games. But what I'm what I'm learning in my uh, sports time travel experiences that I had forgotten was how much time he was hurt. So the Mets bring him in in 72 because they were in dire need of a power hitter. And he gets hurt early in the 72 season and misses most of the season, only hits nine home runs for the season. It was really a lost season. And then we get into 73 and he's still struggling. He's still got injuries, but I know he's going to play a big role later in the season. The, the other thing I'm really enamored with uh, in following the, the Mets these last two seasons, last two seasons, 50 years ago, 72 and 73, is that the fact that they have Willie Mays on the team. When I started following the Mets as a kid in 1970, 71, my, my big memory is we had no superstar hitters. I, I remember the 71 season, our biggest home run, run hitter, was Cleon Jones with 14 home runs. 14 home runs was your big home run hitter. And I was always real jealous of the teams like Cincinnati and Pittsburgh that had big home run hitters like Stargell and Johnny Bench and you know and Hank Aaron was still still hitting lots of home runs. And of course Willie Mays, even though he was towards the end of his career, he was such an amazing player. And when the Mets got Willie Mays, I, I remember just pinching myself thinking, Willie Mays is on our team. And of course, when Willie Mays came to the Mets, he by that time, he was just a fraction of the player he was. And unfortunately, in a lot of people's memories, it, the the narrative seems to be Willie played too long. But when you go back, when I go back now, and especially in 1972, Mays did a lot of really good things for the Mets in 72. He, he hit a, a home run to win his first game as a Met and uh, did, a, did a lot of really good things for them. In the 1973 season, he actually had his best spring training of his entire career. Uh, one interesting thing I found out that I would have never known if it wasn't for this sports time travel experience, it was the first time Willie Mays had ever played spring training in Florida. Because uh, he had been a yes. New York giant his whole career, and they always played in Arizona. And the I, I live in Florida. 
the atmosphere here in Florida is unlike anywhere else in the country. It's warm and humid, very humid. People can't understand the humidity unless you come to Florida. And so he, he got to play in this really warm, humid environment. And that must have just helped him warm up. And he had to just an unbelievable march. He batted 350. He led the team in home runs in spring training. And then the season starts and he, and, and he goes into the cold weather and he instantly gets hurt. And so here we are in June. And he's, he's literally batting something like 130 right now in June in 1973. But you got to give him a break because he's playing hurt. And, um, but, he, but he's going to improve. And, and he's going to get to finish in storybook fashion. He's going to get to finish his, his uh, career, his storied career. He's going to get to finish it in the World Series. So I, I think it's a real knock against him to say, oh, he played past his prime. He, he was very passionate about baseball. And, you know, he, he had done so much for the game that and, and he did have some great moments. Did, like one thing I didn't know is Willie Mays. And I didn't know this because we nobody nobody talked about on base percentage. If, and you probably know that, Kevin. In 1972, nobody nobody's heard of on base percentage. But looking back now, you can appreciate Willie Mays a little more because he led the Mets in on base percentage in 1972. In fact, he had an on base percentage over 400. And so that really puts a different light on Willie Mays continuing his career with the Mets. And, and I remember at the time thinking it's, it's just a dream that Willie Mays is on my New York Mets. And, uh, and so, and so I, I'm writing a lot of articles about Willie Mays to highlight some of his, some of his last great performances and, and put a little bit of a new narrative on how he finished his career as somebody who loved the game of baseball. That's such great points you make there. And it makes sense if you think about the spring training because he grew up in Alabama. So he's back in spring training with the heat and humidity. It did probably loosen him up. And his, just looking at his last one, two, you know, in 1971, his on-base percentage was 425 with the Giants. And, uh, you know, that, that led the league. And then he was four 400. 394. Then with the Mets, he had the 402, and then 303. So that's a great point you make. That really, that really does uh, uh, put it in perspective what he does. And, and I know about the Heat too because I I'm in St. Augustine, so um, oh, okay. so 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 uh, uh, got up early this morning, had some coffee on the patio. It was nice, but it was nice and warm. <laughs> so so that now this is a it's fascinating stuff because you do we can tell Dave and I can both tell that uh, that you look at this through through new eyes at, 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 at every event. And it's fun to do this. And I think what, and I'll throw it back to Dave, but what, what we're seeing and what we're hearing and what, what you're doing is you're enjoying sports for sports, which is kind of nice. Yeah, exactly. My, my first passion here, the first, the reason I'm doing this is my own personal experience. And then I'm sharing something when it's just so exciting. I have to share it with people. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, and I think that's a great way. That's a great uh, message for life out there with the kids and, and our listeners is you've got a gift like Kevin does and, and you you give it away each week. You share it with people out there and it's the best way you can be. I uh, wish more people follow suit with that. Uh, Len, great uh, information for our audience and share with our audience again, where can where can they find you? Where can they, How can they support you? Well, if you go to Substack, substack.com, that's S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K, it's a platform for writers. So go to substack.com. 
and search on the sports time traveler. I believe if you just simply Google, do a simple Google search on the sports time traveler, uh, it will come up uh, either high up or the first thing in the search. Right now, my newsletter and podcast are free at this time. So I would encourage people to uh, subscribe while it's still free. I'm still growing uh, my subscription base and you can see my archive. I've now written close to 150 articles on all different sports. I typically write about once or twice a week, but when I get into uh, uh, certain times of the year, I'll write multiple times. This week's a big week because I'm following uh, two U.S. Open golf tournaments that took place 20 years apart on the same course. I'm calling this, it's a series of articles. I'm calling it Two Weeks at Oakmont. I'm covering both the 1973 U.S. Open 50 years ago and also going back exactly 70 years to cover the 1953 U.S. Open. So, wow. So I'm covering, I'm, I'm writing more, more than uh, almost an article a day this week to cover those two U.S. Open events, which, which were both won in spectacular fashion. Of course, I, don't sh I won't share with you what happened until, until the last article in each of those uh, series. And uh, Len, at the end of our show, Kevin always asks a signature question to our guests. Simple question in nature, but it's very deep. And um, with your experience with anywhere from horse racing to golfers to baseball to Patriot League football, um, I'll let Kevin ask his last question here. Yeah, Len, this is simple, and and again, you can take a second and, and think about it. But it's it's uh, we we get some wonderful answers because everything means a little bit different to everyone else, and and these people that we have on really love what they're doing as you do. So so the question is this: um, What does it mean to be a ball player to you? What what simply does it mean to be a ball player to Len Furman? Well, to me, if you're doing it right and for the right reasons. Uh, which I question a lot of athletes these days, but if you're doing it right and for the right reasons, you're dedicating yourself to that sport. You're focusing and trying to do everything you can to constantly improve. You, you have to have humility because you have to be, if you don't have humility, you won't accept feedback and you have to be accepting of feedback. That's the only way to improve and everybody can improve. I think the, the greatest athletes are those that even in the middle of a great career, they figured out how they could improve. Like Magic Johnson wasn't a great outside shooter, wasn't a great free throw shooter. By the end of his career, he was a 90% free throw shooter. And so I think what it means to be a ball player, a great ball player, is to constantly be improving and, and constantly remember that you are a role model. That you know, when I think back to my own experience as a kid, and I was a diehard New York Mets fan. I looked up to these players. And so it was. It, it's really important for the players to recognize that and, and remember that every day they're out there playing, there's a kid who it might be the only time they're going to see him play in person. And they have to give it their all every game. Well said. Very nice. Len, thanks so much for given our audience a different lens on how to appreciate sports. I think it's refreshing and we're, I know for a fact, we're going to get a great response from it. Kevin, thank you so much for always drawing out the very best in our guests. Um, to our audience, continue to support our brothers at ball nine and Kevin's two articles. We now have a new, new brother in arms here with, 
with Len Furman here with the Sports Time Traveler. Make sure that we're supporting him as well. And to that 19,000 plus subscribers, we're pushing to get to 20,000 by the end of the week. Download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. If you keep doing that, we can battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in baseball. And we can keep providing you great content like we do on Coach and Kern and our flagship show here every week. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Or if you have a different streaming device, let me know and I will subscribe to it. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll get back to one guest every day live, and I'll get back to everybody privately. Also, follow Kevin on all the social mediums as well, including his writing at Ball 9. We're very active throughout the day. 72 countries now, grassroots to MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ. And I think we did that today, guys. Thanks so much to both you, Len. Thank you. And Kevin, thank you for the show today. Thank you very much. Episode 207 in the books. Back in time here now.